You're listening to Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. Molly Boz and I recently developed BA's best chicken parm. And today, we are telling you about every decision that got us to the ultimate recipe. After that, my good friend and GQ contributor, Brett Martin, is on the show. Right before there were lockdowns across the country, Brett had just finished reporting his best new restaurants list for the magazine, which is out now. The timing, no doubt, was strange, and you might even say bad. Uh, So I talked to Brett about what it meant to write a piece celebrating restaurants when they're currently in such a dire place. All right, let's get started. Here's Molly Boz. Boz, are you ready to parm it up? I thought we were going to ring the parm alarm. Don't you want to ring well, the parm alarm with me? <laughs> I like. I prefer to ring the parm alarm like when the chicken parm is done. Then it's that's true. like There's... ringing the the dinner bell. You know, you ring the parm alarm like everyone to the table. But when you're parming it up, that means you're gonna make the parm. That's true. We don't have any chicken parm in the oven at the moment, so no need good. to ring the alarm gonna get there soon okay so you and i have like we've collaborated uh, you've let me ride shotgun on several recipe developments we did the brock bolo the broccoli bolognese we did the pork marbella we did some uh, matzo ball soup i kind of think this is the best one we've done well this one has also been a true collab i feel like we were both very in this the entire way and i think that's probably why it's the best for the listeners who don't spend a lot of time on bonappetit.com, we have a feature called BA's Best, and we, we pick iconic dishes, and the test kitchen editors really go deep on them, and you know they leave no stone unturned, try every iteration of something to sort of achieve the platonic ideal of that dish. And I think what's so interesting about chicken parm is when people were coming into the, the, the kitchen for tastings, everyone's got an opinion. Yeah, and I also feel like, for whatever reason, the world is having a chicken parm moment right now. Like, people are chicken parm obsessed more than they've ever been in my lifetime. So I think it felt like a particularly important dish to develop right now. Okay, so talk to me about the developmental process, because you went about it in a very methodical, methodical, I guess is the word I like to choose, um, approach to developing this dish. And so what, what, what was your strategy? So there's a lot going on in chicken parm, and I think that the only the only viable option was to deconstruct it from the inside out and kind of go into the center of the dish and evaluate every element of it all the way out till till it's like last moments before it's on the table. So we started with thinking about the chicken itself and whether that was going to be a breast or a thigh. And then we started thinking about how are we going to treat that piece of chicken? Is it getting marinated? Is it getting seasoned? What's happening to it? And then we moved a layer out to the breading, which is obviously an important part of the chicken parm before it gets fried. And then we moved on to a discussion about what is the perfect chicken parm tomato sauce. And obviously there were a lot of thoughts there. And finally, there was the cheese convo. And so we just broke it out into those fundamental parts and we worked one at a time and built upon the last until we got to a place where we thought it was pretty freaking great. It is great. I will say that with full confidence. All right, so let's start with the chicken. Um, As much as I love chicken thighs in general, love boneless, skinless chicken thighs for grilling, bone in for like pan roasting, the chicken thighs did not get much of a look in this recipe. 
no, you did not give the chicken thighs a look. I looked at them. And I loved them. <laughs> you didn't let me because nostalgia got the best of you, which is I, which is understandable because this is undeniably nostalgic, this recipe. And so I think you were right to decide that like a chicken breast just felt more iconic. But I will say that I do generally always prefer a chicken thigh when it's breaded and fried. Yeah, it's it, just chicken thighs are delicious. They're juicier, they're meatier, but again, the, the word nostalgic I think carries a lot of weight with this recipe in particular. It's one of those dishes that everyone kind of comes to the table with some sort of notion of what it should taste like of dishes they've had at you know Little Italy or other red sauce joints in America, and those are always boneless chicken breasts. So I think that was fair to start, but I think what you did so successfully in the next step. Um, which I had not done successfully as a home cook. I make chicken parm a lot, and it was always, like, good but never great. You leaned in hard on the seasoning of the breast itself. Yeah, so the the best thing you can do to a, a cut of meat like a chicken breast, which has a tendency to dry out and is out the gates less flavorful than, say, dark meat, is to introduce flavors and ingredients that will help to tenderize that. So we tried a bunch of different marinades for it, everything from white wine to buttermilk to just salt and pepper. And we ended up with a like 15, 20 minute marinade in grated garlic, lots of lemon juice and lots of olive oil, as well as salt, obviously. So the salt is there to season and to allow it to have a little bit of time to actually penetrate through the breast. And then the lemon juice was there to tenderize it sort of like the way buttermilk acts. So the vinegar, we tried, we also tried a vinegar brine is a, a really like fast acting way to tenderize a piece of meat like a chicken breast. The grated garlic I also love. You guys do this a lot in the test kitchen. You take a whole clove of garlic in a microplane and just grate it back and forth. And that sort of like supercharges the marinade. Instead of just having like two cloves smashed, that grating sort of coats each chicken breast and really sort of penetrates flavor-wise. And so that there's something just so Italian tasting, like tastes like Italy, the olive oil, the lemon, the garlic. And, and, and to your point, it also tenderizes the meat, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, so we were off to a good start with the tender, tender chicken breast. Oh, wait, but wait. I'm sorry. I'm going to rewind. Before we marinate it, let's talk about the chicken breast itself, the pounding and the butterflying and what that technique is like. Very important. So we took chicken breasts and butterflied them and opened them up like a book so that they ended up being like one large, very flat chicken breast. And then we also played around with all of the different widths. So pounding it to an eighth of an inch, a quarter of an inch, a half an inch, and taking that piece of chicken all the way through the recipe to see which fared best ultimately. And I think that we ended up with a half inch as the diameter, as the thickness of the chicken breast, which is a lot thicker than most chicken parms in the world that you will eat out in restaurants. I would say a couple of things. You did a good job teaching me on the video, like, uh, the you got the whole breast which the breast you know it can be pretty big and on the curved side that's when you sort of laterally cut into it with a chef's knife so you open it up and it almost looks like heart shaped and then you yep. put that between wax paper and if you have a tenderizer or you know if you have a wine bottle whatever you have to pound it thin and i think i like it a little bit thicker because it stays juicier and i taste the chicken more some people like it thinner 
that's fine. I, again, it is kind of up to you to decide how you like it. So, all right. So we mm, I would say it. they're wrong, oh. actually. <laughs> they're wrong. But, okay. <laughs> uh, as long I as mean, there's a reason it. this is the best. It's because it's the best. That It is the best. All right. So we pounded it. We marinated it for 20 minutes. While we've got the chicken marinating, we set up our dredging station. So let's talk about that. So here's the things that we tested. We did a classic dredge of just flour, egg, panko. We did a classic flour, egg, breadcrumb. We did a flour, egg, mix of panko and breadcrumb. Flour, egg, mix of blitzed panko and unblitzed panko. Can I just interject there? Like, just so the reason <laughs> it was it was very hard to keep track of all these cutlets and what one was going to which one. And like you had, a, <laughs> again, masking tape and Sharpies everywhere. At some point, my friend Nikki Reese, who used to work at BA, she was making chicken parm. And like I, we love panko breadcrumbs because those nice little shards that get super crispy. But she was saying, like, oh, well, sometimes when you do just panko, you get some bald spots or it's not as densely packed. So we were like... Well, what if you mix panko with traditional like progresso breadcrumbs to sort of get some fine, some shards? Or you said, well, what if you took panko and then blitzed them in a food processor? And I think a lot of those, the thing about BA's best, like you want to go enough steps that it is the best, but at some point you're also like, okay, this is crazy. I've got to get out my food processor and blitz half a panko and put them back with the other ones. Right. Like we still want this recipe to be cookable and makeable for home cooks. This isn't a restaurant dish. Um, so those are all considerations that we take when we develop BA's best. So it's sort of like the best given all circumstances. But we also then tried a version where we went straight from the marinade into panko, then into egg, back into panko. And that was actually a revelation because the crust was so thick and so crispy but we found that by the time we got to dredging the fourth breast there was a lot of like gloopy panko egg situation happening and it was just kind of a mess overall required a lot of care and it didn't feel necessarily foolproof again another like restauranty technique if you were making just one to order the double panko was an interesting thing but if you're making Great. you know for an entire family it was too much so what we ended up with was flour with a little bit of salt in the flour, egg beaten eggs where you put the, the onion powder and garlic powder. I didn't have that. I just did a, a spinach of salt. And then the, the panko, which you do not season because you like to season it when it comes out of the oil, correct? Right. And, and I found with the panko, the key, once you, like, you dip it in the flour, shake it, dip it in the egg wash, shake it off, and then when you put in the panko to really pack the panko in there with both hands with your hands. And so you make sure all those breadcrumbs really adhere to the cutlet, right? Yeah, I think that was the best possible outcome. And I felt like my cutlet when I shot it last week with you was so crispy and very well coated. It didn't need the double dredge. Like if you no. just take that extra bit of care, you've got a really crispy cutlet on your hands. And then we picked up a trick from Claire Saffitz when she was developing BA's Best Fried Chicken Sandwich, which I highly recommend you Google. That's amazing. Uh, she found that after you bread your cutlet, put it in the fridge for about a half hour or so, and that helps all the coating and everything to adhere and really become one with the chicken breast, right? The flour and panko sort of hydrates with that egg and the marinade, and it becomes this, like, crust. Yeah, yeah. So you got these breast cutlets breaded, 
awesome. They're ready to go. One thing I've kind of learned from you in terms of when I'm frying things or sauteing, frying, I guess, I felt like I've never used enough oil. You go all in on the oil. Yeah, you need to have enough oil in your skillet such that the cutlet doesn't touch the bottom of the skillet because those like contact points will brown faster than the rest that's not touching it. So like there needs to be a good, I would say, you know, one inch of oil, which doesn't sound like a lot, but is actually can be up to like three or four cups, depending on how wide your skillet is. Skillet or a Dutch oven. I like a Dutch oven with the high sides. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, it should be floating. And that's what's going to give you that really even golden brown crust, which you achieved in the video the other week. Also, to my uh, friend of the pod, Gabe T, he was texting me the other day. He's making chicken parm this weekend. He was asking about well, do I use olive oil? Do I use a mix of olive oil and neutral oil? Just neutral oil? We found just neutral oil, correct? Like vegetable oil, yeah. grapeseed, etc. I'm not a big fan of frying in olive oil because A, it's very expensive when we're talking about a quantity as large as three cups. But B, olive oil is really strong in flavor and we already had so much going on and we were trying to strike a balance of all these different elements and to then fry it in olive oil and have olive oil be the like predominant overwhelming flavor didn't exactly feel right. Yeah, it felt unnecessary. Also the fact that the yeah, olive oil has a, a pretty low smoke point and it's just it's just not worth the hassle. And, and to your point, the, the meat is already so flavorful. There's the, the breading is seasoned and we haven't even gotten to the sauce and cheese. So sauce. We went back and forth on this one. Again, we did like a million bajillion tests. We tried crushed tomatoes. We tried pureed tomatoes, hand crushed tomatoes. We did versions with just onion and butter a la Marcella Hazan. We did versions with uh, onion that was diced and chopped garlic. And we did, thought that was too chunky. We did uh, versions with halved onions and no garlic. It went on and on. And we thought we had it, I think, at one point when we used crushed tomatoes with a halved onion, so not diced up, and some garlic and tomato paste, which was there for like depth of flavor and to really bring out the tomatoiness of it without having to stew the sauce for hours. And then there was this whole discussion about the consistency of it. And that's when you brought up the like micro minced onion. <laughs> and you were just telling me that the reason my sauce had been too chunky all along was that I wasn't mincing my onion finely enough. So we changed yeah, you the had, recipe you had, to very you had, a very, you, had, you had a very rustic chop to your chunked onions. And the sauce was it would be good in pasta, but it was a very like textural sauce. And I think... The most important thing with the sauce on a chicken parm is that you have, you start with tomato puree, that it's smooth and even, and it shouldn't make that much of a statement in the whole thing. It should be one element that is in, in harmony with the other elements. <laughs> um, yeah, I really appreciated that insight, actually, because I wasn't <laughs> thinking of it that way. And I was kind of like, it's Italian. It's rustic. Like, just throw it in the pot. But I thought your restraint was um, really important, actually, ultimately, in this dish. <laughs> How long – see, I, I think you and I differ a little bit in terms of how long you like to simmer a sauce for. I think you like to go a little bit longer for a more concentrated flavor. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I just – I'm wary of people getting 
pardon my French, shitty canned tomatoes and not letting them go long enough and them having this like really tinny, acidic, uncooked tomato flavor. So for me, it's like better to err on the side of more cooked when it comes to canned tomatoes. I think that's a really good point. I mean, if you can find them and afford them, and they're not that expensive, but if you can get the imported Italian San Marzano tomatoes. So I, I love that Muti brand, and they have just jars of pureed tomatoes, just simple pureed tomatoes, clean, delicious. And then to that, you add the olive oil and garlic and stuff. And oh, yeah, the other point that you made getting back um, to frying the cutlets in olive oil, like there's enough olive oil in the sauce that introduces an olive oil flavor. You don't need it also in the pan. That's the other key to a great tomato sauce is not holding back on fat. Uh, Tomatoes are so inherently acidic and sort of sweet that they need fat to balance them and to turn them into this like very unctuous, fatty, for lack of better words, sauce. We also do what a lot of Italian granonas might do is we add a bit of sugar to the sauce, like three quarters of a teaspoon just to balance some of the acid in the tomatoes. Okay, so the cheese is interesting because the one recipe we had on site already was from Pietro's, which is an Italian steakhouse that I love in New York City that I've written about a lot. But that chicken parm, it's kind of a different beast. It's super thin. You and I went with with Chris Morocco and Sola, pounded super thin, a thin layer of sauce, and then only Parmesan cheese, which gets all sort of brulee and blistered on top. But what it doesn't give you is that nice, big, gooey cheese pull that I think so many of us equate with a good chicken parm. Yeah, I wonder if originally chicken parm only had parm, because after all, it is the namesake. And I wonder when mozzarella entered the equation. But now for me, mozzarella and parm is the way to go. And that's like the iconic chicken parm. Yeah, because we've I've had a lot of bad chicken parm that just has like kind of, you know, store-bought low moisture mozzarella and it doesn't get brown enough and it's just too gooey and just kind of milky, kind of neutral. Yeah. I think it's probably always had it, should have always had a mix. If you just do parm, it gets expensive also. Yeah, and there's a lot of parm in ours. Like I think it's six ounces maybe, which is like a um, fat I, wedge. I, I have the recipe right up here. This is enough for like four people, but uh, six ounces of low moisture mozzarella. So like if you go to the grocery store, that's the kind in the refrigerated unit just wrapped up. Do not splurge and get buffalo mozzarella if you're good no. old fancy shop. Like, that's way too much liquid moisture in there. Like I think this grocery store version is the best. You, if you also have like an Italian market where they make their own mozzarella and that stuff can usually be pretty decent, just the really simple American-made stuff, um, and then four ounces of grated Parmesan, and that mixed together, I think, gives you that nice balance of gooiness, but also sharpness from the parm. And then what you pointed out, when it's under the broiler, what's your favorite verb right here when it's under the broiler? What does it do? It leopards, the leoparding. Yes. We're looking for a good leoparding on the cheese, which is that speckly, spotted leopard-like look that it gets when it's been perfectly broiled and melted. Yeah, so that's what we do. So we see you got the cutlet, you fried them, you let them sit on a, a cooling rack until they're ready to go, and then we do it like this. So let's talk about the building in terms of, I guess it depends on how many cutlets you're doing. We kind of went back and forth in terms of how to build the thing. I, this time, did it just for Simone and me in a cast iron skillet with like the really big full breast, put it in there, no sauce on the bottom, whether you're doing a skillet or a ceramic dish, anything. Sauce on top. We had a thing during the tasting. I like to leave a few corners exposed so you know that they stay crunchy and crispy and you got the little crispy bits. 
Yeah. Cheese on top of the the smoothed over sauce. Uh, just uh, be pretty generous with the cheese. Yeah, like more than you are comfortable with, I would say. Yeah, this is not a this is not on healthyish.com. And then I think what we both did was at some point we were like, oh well, let's add a little bit extra sauce on the edges of of the baking dish where there isn't anything, because it's always nice to have a little extra sauce, right? Yeah, and then I think it was Delaney who was like, what, you're not going to put a sidecar of sauce out there? And so then it was like, okay, if there's leftover sauce, you put it in a sidecar as you would a martini. Yes, but a chicken I, parm sidecar. <laughs> hard, heartily endorse that. So whether it's in a pan, a, a you know, ceramic dish, whatever, um, you got the one big breast or two side by side, lots of cheese, sauce on it, a few el- bits and pieces sticking out so they stay nice and crispy and crunchy. And then that just goes into a oven with the broiler, not like 500 degrees, but just the broiler, right? Because like at that point, the, the chicken breasts are still warm. They should be. And you want it fairly close to the broiler, right? Like a few inches away? Yeah. And every broiler is different. So I think that the most important thing is just to keep an eye on things. But I will say that the reason that we do the broiler, and, and this goes back to why we pounded our chicken breast to only a half an inch, is that... The chicken is probably like just cooked through when it comes out of the fryer. So then to put it back into an oven and give it another 10 or 15 minutes to let the cheese melt would be would be to do a real disservice to the chicken breast. So we sort of accounted for that and allowed for it to just go under the broiler for a couple of minutes so that that chicken breast doesn't dry out anymore. And it's really juicy. Right. Boz, we got a fact check right here. In your recipe that you wrote up, you wrote, using a meat mallet, pound breasts until quarter inch thick. So, okay. <laughs> you're, you're now Maybe holding your it's fi- a finger inch. and thumb. Yeah. I would say somewhere in that range of honestly, a quarter to a third. Honestly, I think it's a third of an inch. Well, we can change that because the recipe hasn't gone what to print What is yet. a third of an inch, though? I, like, how do you could, even measure that? With a ruler. <laughs> Is that, um, but can you actually like see that mark? Well, I would say, listen, in terms of, again, this kind of comes back to personal preference. It's, it's, it's not super thin, like going back to the days of like veal milanese or veal piccata or whatever. It's not that super pounded thin. It's, it's, you want some meatiness still. Also, unless you're really skilled, there's going to be parts of the breast that are thicker than other parts, you know, that just kind of happens. But I think in that somewhere of a third to a quarter, a half inch is probably a little bit thicker than you want. At least that's what you yeah. wrote. So anyway, so yeah, so hit it in the broiler. It gets all leoparded on top. It's bubbly. There's little brown spots. You pull it out, and then the, the finishing touch. Oh, geez. Why are you asking me to do this? This is like your big claim to fame in this recipe. <laughs> well, this – all right, so I st- we stole this, actually, from your favorite restaurant in Brooklyn, Bernie's, where they do a really beautiful chicken parm. Um, what I loved about the photo there is that so you got the, the 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 white bubbly sort of leoparded cheese, you have the bright red sauce, the crispy cutlet, and then they hit it with like this confetti of finely minced parsley. So you got the red, the white, and the green, and it's just like oh my god, that's so beautiful. The Italian flag, yeah. So you made a big thing about micro minced parsley. It calls for like one tablespoon or like one teaspoon of micro minced parsley, and it was always just like, don't forget the micro mints. So it's like, but it's like, it's like, ha- micro mints. it's like, it's like having a birthday cake and forgetting to put the candles on top. You know, you gotta have that. It is a game changer. 
I so, would say don't not make it if you can't find parsley. <laughs> parsley is easy to find. So it's a very nice finishing touch and you bring it to the table and everyone's like, woo. But you know, the funny thing about this, like we made it the other day in this video we shot and Simone was around. She's like, oh, can I have a bite? And immediately she was like, oh my God. And you can tell when someone says something's good just because they're on camera. Yeah, and you can tell when they're so like, oh man. <laughs> Yeah, it was just, God, it's so good. It's just one of those things. I, I would say the, the one problem with this recipe is it's so good you can't stop eating it. And next thing you've known, you've had like three servings. Oh, oh, oh let's talk about your controversial next day salad. Um, I don't think it was controversial for anyone but you. Come on. this is uh, pl- All right, go, just go ahead. Okay, I will. Thank you. The next day, I had an abundance of leftovers, and I was in the mood for a salad. And so I made like a really vinegary chopped Italian salad. And then I sliced up my cold chicken parm, and I did not reheat it. And I laid it over it. And it was maybe the best salad I've ever had in my life. And so then I posted on Instagram asking people the question, is cold chicken parm better than hot chicken parm? And what did they say? The polls showed that like 70% of my following prefers cold chicken parm. And you were the only one who <laughs> okay. took offense to First that. First of all, polls often show that the public doesn't know what they're talking about. So it, people can say, <laughs> people can say like, oh my God, I love cold pizza. But like no one loves cold pizza more than hot, crispy, gooey, cheesy pizza. And it's the same thing with chicken parm. It's like, it's not to say you don't like it the next day. It's not to say that you're not stoked. It's in your fridge when you open it up and you're like, you come back from the bar or whatever. But I mean, it's never going to be as crispy and gooey and juicy and everything as, as hot chicken parm. Come I on. know, but it's, it's crispy gone soggy, man. <laughs> it's crispy, gone soggy. Uh, paging a meal, stonic. So yeah, I, no, I would. I, I I do like that combo of the chicken parm. That's again like the the meaty, cheesy, oily chicken parm on top of a really bracing, vinegary, uh, chopped oh, Italian salad. Delicious. So. Molly Boz, I'm extremely hungry right now. You are awesome. Thank you so much, and uh, see you back in New York one of these days. Okay. Good to see your face. Bye. Bye. Okay, thanks so much to Molly Boz. And reminder, you can find BA's best chicken parm on bonappetit.com. But before you go make it, here is Brett Martin. Brett Martin, how are you doing down there in New Orleans? Oh, you know, we're hanging in here. Uh, Things are are okay. Pretty much, I imagine, the same way things are everywhere else. But uh, a lot of cooking, a lot of children... Not a lot of going out. Yeah, are you are you out and about in the city all, or are you pretty much hunkered down at home? I have a three year old and a five year old, uh, and they have a lot of uh, energy. They're fantastic, but they need to move a little bit. So we actually, one of the nice things here is that the population is sort of small enough that we the parks are manageable without getting near anybody, and so we've been using the parks a lot. We have a yard, which is very nice. I'm shopping once every 10 days or so. But other than that, pretty much pretty much home. So let's talk about your Best New Restaurants article in the May issue of GQ. I want to rewind, if that's okay. Right now, it's Thursday, April 23rd. Let's go back to Sunday, March 1st. You and I met up in Philadelphia 
for the Philly Chefs Conference. We went out to dinner that night at Laser Wolf, a Michael Solomonoff restaurant that you ended up adding to your list of best new restaurants. Yeah. At that moment, what was going on in your head in regards to the coronavirus? How worried were you about it? How sensitive to it were you? I'm having a hard time looking back to that night and remembering where our heads were at. Well, our heads were really close to each other's, which is one of the big, <laughs> one of the big things I remember. Um, there, I remember a lot of passing food and a lot of like close talking, as as sometimes happens with the Rappaports. And I remember it as you know this last night. It was the last night of my travels, as it happens. Um, for, you know, my about f- uh, three and a half months of travel for this story. So that was my last dinner. And uh, the truth of the matter is, I'd given very little thought to coronavirus at that point. It was like a sort of background noise. More and more people on airplanes were wearing masks. I, at our, the conference that you just mentioned, there was a, a chef um, who appeared wearing a mask, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say. All I, right, let's, let's, let's talk about that because, all right, so Kwame and Wachi, the chef at Kip and Cannon. Yeah. And at the time, it was like, oh, my God, is he, is he overreacting? Is that a bit much? Is Kwame sick? But looking back, I'm like, oh, my God. We all should have been wearing masks. We were in a extremely crowded series of rooms at Drexel University, a bunch of chefs and media people packed in there. And I look back at that. That was Monday afternoon. On that Saturday night, I was at a crowded friend's 50th birthday party in Washington, D.C. I was on the Amtrak both times from D.C. to Philly, Philly to New York. And you look back and you're like, oh, my God, what were we doing? And, and But I'm with you. And we were at Laser Wolf enjoying some very wonderfully grilled meats and meze and whatnot. It, it was just not in my mind. No. There was a giant Purell next to the oh, – we, we stayed in different hotels. But at my hotel, which is where the, um, where the conference was, there was an enormous gallon jug of Purell next to every elevator. And I remember thinking, oh, that's funny. It was almost a conversation piece – more than a serious health concern at the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, as it turns out, so I, yeah, and, and of course, yes, this was a this was a conference filled with people from all over the country who were probably making the conference rounds and a lot of handshaking and hugging, and it's actually a very good memory if, if I if I think back on it. But it's incredible to me how quickly things changed when I got back to New Orleans, which was you know just shortly after that. Yeah. So about. A little over a week or so later, I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but there was that infamous night when Tom Hanks tested positive. The NBA canceled its season. That was a Wednesday evening, maybe the 10th, I think. And then that's when everything got extremely real and the dominoes started to fall. And as that was happening, here you are at home having to write this. How many words is your article? 5,500 words or something, yeah. Yeah, 5,500-word piece on the best new restaurants in America with beautiful photos and layout and print issue of GQ online at GQ.com. What's going on in your head? Because this is not a celebratory time right now in the country, and here you are with this very celebratory article. Yeah, it was was very awkward timing, to say the least. Um, I had actually written the piece, I think. I'd come home. uh, I I was very late already. The piece had probably been due before we even before the night in Philadelphia you're talking about. So I, I had to write it pretty fast. The places had been chosen. I had written this story. And then that night, uh, as a matter of fact, I was at dinner, nobody checking their phones. I went to the bathroom, checked my phone, and that was when all that Hank's NBA stuff had happened. 
we were in a very weird position, it's uh, obviously. We were in a position of trying to figure out, making a call, not knowing, if you remember what it was like back then, every day felt like a month. It's, I, think, I think people do forget, you know, now in, in this digital world, what it takes to physically create a magazine, and it means that you're way, way ahead of schedule. So we were in a position of having to make a decision in the midst of the very earliest stages of things uh, about whether what this would be, what the world would look like two months down the line, what would this be offensive, would it be a joke? Was there any justification for what is usually, as you say, the celebratory, not only a celebratory thing, but in, in urging people to go out and, and visit these places? And so for a couple of days, we, we sort of thought about it. Um, I thought about it. And the conclusion we came to was, first of all, that we were willing to take the risk of looking like asses. You know, and I, I fully expected and maybe still expected to be parts of it to feel off. But that the world that I was celebrating, the world that I'd had this privilege of being in, not just this year, but for the last five years that I did, this is my fifth year working on this story, that the, the world of restaurants was worth celebrating um, and that the work of these places was worth celebrating, even if at the moment, or maybe never again, we were going to be able to go to them. In my mind, I think, A, you did a really good job with the introduction to the piece before you got to the you know descriptions of each individual restaurant, putting it in context, questioning these decisions, it, it being very sort of candid with the reader about, do we do this? How do we go about it? I, I, I think, A, for the restaurants themselves, it's important to acknowledge and celebrate them. You, I think we fail to realize as consumers, as diners, just how much work and effort chefs and restaurateurs, especially independent, small business-owned ones, put into creating this this performance every night that is a, a restaurant and and the, the creativity and the energy and the effort that goes involved just so we can go eat dinner. Yeah, and I say, I make a point in the piece of saying that I'm really writing not only about food or about cooking, but about the art of restauranting, which is something that involves all those other people that you're talking about and the entire kind of creation of a social space and, and a performance. And and that's the thing that, that we're missing so terribly now is, is I mean, because actually I, I would not have guessed, I, it did not seem at all as though this takeout world was going to exist in the form in, 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 that it does right now. The, the one thing of restaurants we have, at least some of, is the food. What we're missing is the restaurants. That's the big question, because, like, you know, restaurants as sort of kitchens slash food commissaries, I can see that getting going in the coming months as, as the country start, tries to get back to work. But I, it's hard to imagine restaurants as restaurants, as theater. And if you look at a city like New York or San Francisco, and like New York, these are small spaces, say, let's say 60 seats in the East Village or something, 50 seats. And the only way they turn a profit, a very slim profit margin, is if they're full all the time, you know, if they're doing multiple turns at dinner. And if a restaurants are ordered to, you know, operate at half capacity to maintain social distancing, I don't know how that math works out. I, I don't know how it worked out before. I mean, I think that's part of what's been revealed is that it was extremely fragile. It was, it was already sort of ready to collapse. I don't know. I can tell you that I hate delivery and hated it before. <laughs> and uh, I lived in New York for, you know, as you well know, 
well, all my life until I moved down here. And but for the last ten years, I, I may have ordered delivery twice. And and the, the the movement already towards these ghost kitchens and towards the isolation of uh, of eating at home was already something that that was driving me crazy. So it's fascinating to see that that that's maybe all we have for a while. It is beyond my imagination to know what what restaurants are going to look like again, and particularly in the, you're right in these urban spaces. I think as a chef, like chefs, yes, you, you love to cook food, good food. I, I think chefs are just inherently some of those generous people out there just in terms of they, they exist to make people happy. The chef community has always been so involved in charity. Like that's just a part and parcel of what the restaurant industry is about. But you don't open a restaurant just to make food. It, it, it is about the theater. It's about the experience. It's about imbuing your space with the personality you wanted to have and the design and the vibes and the, the communal energy that one feeds off of when going to a restaurant. And if you can't do that, you wonder who's going to want to sort of get involved on just the food side of things, just feeding people, which is hugely important, but it's a very different business. I agree. I, I suspect that we're going to find ways. We're going to change to what we expect. And I'm not at all an expert on the whole rescue problems um, or the, the financial side of it. It sounds like a, it's an utter disaster from what I can tell. But I, start, I think you're going to start to see some accommodations. I don't know if you saw that, you know, Dave Chang's thread asking for photos from reopened restaurants in China was fascinating and you know the way that you know plexiglass set up in certain places and 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 you know checks at the door um the temperature checks and uh, i don't i don't know it was it's, it's interesting about that like people complain about all these things and it's fascinating how quickly people adapt yeah i mean the notion of having to put a mask on to the grocery store is everyone's up in arms and a week later everyone's putting a mask on to the grocery store like it's no big deal yeah so i i do think i do think chefs will be creative i do think people will adapt but it's gonna be a different world and you know i mean it, it as begs an important question in terms of you and i are both in food media uh you are a restaurant and food writer what this does to your job with bon appetit for instance uh, we will not be doing our annual best new restaurants issue, uh, which normally would our hot ten would come list would come out uh, with the October issue, uh, print issue of BA, and would be released mid September online. You know we can't do it. Like that, that's something that would be having just been reported this past six weeks would have been photographed. All that like there are not there are no best new restaurants right now for us to report on and to celebrate and to cover. And so then that begs the question, like, all right, well, what about next year? Where are we at that point? Do we do a restaurant issue that talks about the restaurant world and chronicles their struggles and triumphs, but does not do these, this, the typical best new restaurants list? Yeah. I mean, I, I gotta say it was, it was extremely, unf- I felt, I felt very, cursed at first that this had happened right at the end of all this work I'd done because it's all about me. And, um, but, but I am also really grateful in the end that, that I didn't have to cancel it, that we didn't, that it wasn't far enough, uh, you know, that I wasn't in the, on the cycle that you guys are and that I had had, certainly I felt lucky I'd had this chance to travel during, you know, in the last days of whatever the previous world will have been. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I know that about what, the, what we'll do in the future. I think the story now, obviously, for a long time, is going to be figuring out the logistics of, of getting through this. There's a weird, I don't know if this is exactly to the point, but it's, it, it, it's something that's been bothering me. There's this weird trend of 
people conflating this with with saying it was a very popular tweet that was out there like you know at the you know who's going to stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and say I really miss fine dining you know and that got a tremendous amount of play as though we should all come out of this and and throw away all of the pleasure that we take in the higher end of of food and and eating fancily and all these things and frankly I I think that will be a tremendous triumph if we get back to a time when we for for my birthday I can go eat some foie gras you know I mean I know that sounds <laughs> it's not that it's, it's it's not at all that that that's the first thing on my mind it's not at all that uh I don't think that this has exposed certain structural problems that make fine dining problematic all these things but I don't hear anybody calling for the end of opera I don't hear anybody calling for the end of ballet or serious books or haute couture, you know, to, to say that this whole art of fine dining, fine dining is a difficult word because people mean different things by it, but the art of... of uh, expensive take, dining. Ex- well, expensive or taking food seriously should be thrown out with the bathwater of, re, you know, is problematic. I mean, yeah, not to be crass, but it, it, as, as long as there's capitalism and as long as there's people with wealth there will be some version of fine dining whether there's tablecloths or not or flowers or etc cetera, etc cetera. we're going to be in this for a lot longer it's going to be more gradual and like the returning to quote-unquote normal is not going to be a, a day after sort of thing it's going to take months and months and months and absolutely and yeah and i mean i think yeah. and i think it's reasonable to ask questions about how fragile this system was and you know and 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 take the opportunity to i don't know what these changes look like but to 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 um, I mean, just today, Gabriel Hamilton's piece uh, came out in the in the Times. I don't know if it's in the Times Magazine or in the Times, but about how a place like Prune, a legendary restaurant, was essentially just right on the precipice the whole time of yeah. of collapsing, and that that is a problem. It's a problem, especially in cities like New York, with what would it cost to be there. And you know, it would be lovely if. Some changes did come out of this. I don't think the change is going to be people wanting to get together in restaurants, though, or enjoy, you know, incredible, creative food of hardworking, brilliant chefs. Yeah, I think that's what's going to be interesting in the year ahead. Like, there needs to be change in the restaurant industry for the for the business model to be tenable. Um, it, it, like I said, it, it, every every restaurant seemed to be on the precipice before, and it was such a grind and. You know, line cooks not getting paid nearly enough. The issues of like, you know, tip included that kind of worked, but then didn't work. You know, workers not having equity, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of problems that, you know, perhaps this is an opportunity to at least address them and try to solve them. Um, you know, and it's going to be interesting to see if that is something that happens. We're not going to solve the restaurant industry uh, in this podcast, Brett, but I, I right. am curious, shifting gears slightly to your best new restaurants article in GQ. If you had to pick three, your top three <laughs> moments yeah. during your travels, investigating all of these restaurants, what would they be? Oh, man. Well, I have to say, I mean, it's, and part of it is obviously context, you know, that our last dinner that you, that we talked about at the beginning of this, you know, maybe, maybe slightly, you know, glowing a little stronger because of where we are now, but the communal sort of fun of that meal has lingered in my mind and is, is, uh, yeah, explain, is sort of, explain Laser Wolf and what its sort of menu concept is. Cause it's something that I really enjoyed and I imagine you did too. Yeah. Well, it's great. I mean, especially given, you know, what, it, what a chore it is to figure out how to order or sure it was to figure out how to order in restaurants, you know, over the past couple of years, this is the idea is Michael Solomonoff, who, you know, who, this is his fourth or fifth uh, restaurant in Philadelphia and it's a, an Israeli grill house. And it's 
It's very simple. There's sort of oilcloth, uh, plastic coverings on the tables. You order f- meats out of a fluorescent, like butcher's case. Um, you, as soon as you sit down, the table is absolutely covered in pickles and sauces and hummus and dips uh, that everybody gets. And then you order meats that come off sort of perfectly from the grill, kebabs and marinated fish and it's the kind of quintessence of a feast of a communal feast where everybody's passing stuff back and forth over each other you're talking too loud it's a little too loud in there and it feels like eating together which as I say I'm a little more poignant or I find a little more poignant at this moment than than maybe I would have even before but um it was the last edition. It was my, as I say, it was the last restaurant of my trip. Uh, I was really tired of eating in restaurants at that point. I was really burnt out. I, all I wanted to do was be home with my family. And yet, I was like, "This is what, this is what restaurants can do." That that is fun. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed. I said the format of it. All you had to do was pick. All right, we'll do, we'll do the, we'll do the steak skewers. We'll do the lamb, and then we'll do the tuna. And it, there was three of us there, and then everything else just comes, and you don't have to think about it. You don't have to make any decisions. As you know, there is nothing that drives me crazier than if you're at a dinner with like six people and everyone's trying to order like, well, should we get this and should we get that? Or can we split this? And I'm like, no, I want my own entree. You can't have it. No, you can. If you guys want to share, that's fine. But I'm not sharing. And it gets into a whole thing. And then like the waiter doesn't hear. And are you sure you got that? And here it's just like, no, we'll have this lamb and beef. Boom, done. And yet there's this this, this spirit of abundance and, and community and you're sharing and and you just enjoy it with warm pita bread. Yeah. So I, I thought that was awesome. Yeah, it's funny you say because it's it's I had thought I was really burned out on this Middle Eastern thing that's been happening, but really started in some ways with Solomon of Zahav and has dominated, you know, I, I never needed to eat hummus again. Uh, I didn't need, you know, this sort of Mediterranean thing that has been happening for at least four or five years now. But one of my other favorites was uh, Layla in Detroit, which is the son of, there's this great, great uh, Lebanese restaurant outside in the suburbs of Detroit called Phoenicia. And the son opened a restaurant in downtown Detroit. Um, You know, Detroit has this incredible Middle Eastern population and food scene. It was the same thing. It was this, it was just, you just big, big piles of bread and and sausages and meats and, and, I don't know. That's what I, I, I kind of rekindled my love for eating that way. How did, how did that restaurant differ than a lot of the Middle Eastern restaurants like in Dearborn that are, are, are not young and cool? Did this feel like a young and cool restaurant? Yeah. I mean, it was, it's right downtown where, where no restaurant would have been before the sort of revival of downtown Detroit. And it, it, it felt a little clubby in some ways, actually. Uh, you know, it wasn't entirely aesthetically my scene. You know, and it, it had some of the niceties of slightly uh, higher-end dining. But, I mean, frankly, I, I, I could spend all day in Dearborn. I could fly into Dearborn and just spend three days driving around Dearborn, and I'd be perfectly happy. This was just, it took sort of all the best of that with some, some more of the, of the niceties of, of, that we're used to in modern dining. Yeah, I, kind of, I, I love that sort of uniquely American, I mean, not uniquely American, but very American tendency of the younger generation of, of you know, maybe your parents are immigrants, maybe they came to this country and opened a restaurant, and then you're the kid who grew up in America. If you look like a Chris at Night Market in L.A. and taking his father's cooking of Thai cuisine and, and doing his version of a Thai restaurant with natural wine and cool music and good vibes and slightly different menu – but the spirit is still there in what the in, in the food of the family. Yeah, I think that's that's a, that's very well put. That's my answer. But so that was another one. And then I mean, I just want to pick. I don't know. I mean, they were great. This you get one more. Just one more. 
you know, I love this 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 shabu shabu place in Austin, dip 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 Tatsuya, which is like going onto a space onto a spaceship to to eat uh, to eat shabu shabu in your own little yeah. Talk talk about those guys, the restaurant tours and chefs who you know we've put on our best new restaurants list. You did a couple years ago. Can you just give the reader some background on them? Yeah, they're just these brilliant. We you know we were talking about how a restaurant is more than just food. They are just brilliant creators of these immersive almost theme parky spaces, but with, you know, that, that combine Texas and Japan and feel super authentic to both. And this is like being in, you know, like I say, it's like, a, like being in a, like the matrix version of a library reading room and you get your own little, you're sitting on these like little Japanese toilets with not actually a toilet, but it's a little, little <laughs> office <laughs> and there's lots of work to do. And you've got an egg timer and tools and, uh, it's, it's actually kind of stressful, frankly, but it's, um, <laughs> but it's a cool, it's a cool experience. So I like that, uh, a lot, but what I just want to say, what I, and what I was trying to say sort of clumsily before about the fine dining is, you know, it's easy right now because of what's happened to think that all of that was somehow fatally built into the scene we had, you know, that, that, it, that there was something just terribly wrong. And, and there were definitely things wrong, but I think we should all be very conscious of what a privilege and how wonderful it was to be living in this in time when all these restaurants existed simultaneously, when a taqueria on the border outside San Diego and a Laotian bar in, in Washington, D.C. And, and this place in Austin, Texas, of all places, and, and a Basque place in the Lower East Side, like all of this is is part of what it meant to eat out in in america and that was great it was great for every, it was you know i don't know if it was great for everybody but it was a great place to eat and it was probably it was a great place to be a chef and a uh, and an exciting time to live through so i just think it's worth that that was ultimately the the reason we went ahead and published this thing yeah i think that's really well said just the breadth of quality and choices of cuisines in this country really is unparalleled to anywhere else in the world. And I, and I, and I hope that's something that we as diners appreciate and recognize because um, the, the food in America, it really is bar none. Yeah, you wouldn't have thought at some point that, that there'd be an audience for all this amazing bounty and, and an appetite on both sides for it. And it's, uh, I, I, hope we have, I hope we come back to some version, some more sustainable version in which that doesn't go away. Let's hope for that. All right, Brett Martin, stay safe down there in New Orleans, and thanks so much for joining us. You can find Brett's piece on GQ.com, America's Best New Restaurants 2020. Thanks, Brett. Thank you. Be well. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman, with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Inamine. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.